But we do tell people that there are only two types of plans at JRTC. There are plans that will not work, and then there are plans that might work. We have to break habits. We have to actually convince people that they're not going to be able to spend three, four weeks preparing to go into a mission set. They may be contested from the minute they leave home station. They may have people collecting against them as they're moving to a port of debarkation. They may have cyber attacks that eliminate their ability to communicate what their supply requests are as they're getting ready to deploy. Hey, welcome back to the Modern War Institute podcast. I'm John Ambo, Editorial Director at MWI, and for this episode, I spoke to Brigadier General David Doyle. He is the Commanding General of the Joint Readiness Training Center and Fort Polk. Now, many of our listeners have probably been to JRTC, but if you haven't been there for a rotation recently, you might not realize how much has changed. Why are things changing? Well, one reason is because the Army has been undergoing this really major shift toward preparing for large-scale combat operations. A second reason is because of how much the global operating environment, the technological landscape, and the full range of threat capabilities have also changed. All of those require the Army to constantly assess and adapt the way it trains. But it isn't just about training. What's happening at JRTC and the other combat training centers also plays a role in the broader picture of Army modernization. You'll hear how in this episode. Before we get to it, as always, just a couple very quick things. First, if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. It is a great way to stay up to date on all of the new articles, podcast episodes, and research we're publishing every day. And second, as always, what you hear in this episode are the views of the participants and don't represent those of West Point, the Army, or any other agency of the U.S. government. All right, here's my conversation with Brigadier General David Doyle. Sir, thank you so much for joining me on this episode of the Modern War Institute podcast. Thank you for having me. It's a privilege to be here. First of all, being at the United States Military Academy at West Point is fantastic, but the uh, chance to address some of the listeners who I knew consume this podcast pretty regularly is phenomenal. Thank you. So you are the commanding general of JRTC, the Joint Readiness Training Center, and Fort Polk. Um, most of our listeners will be pretty familiar with JRTC. I would hazard to guess that um, uh, you know a substantial minority, if not a majority of them, uh, have been or will be going to JRTC for a training rotation uh, at some point. But if you can kind of um, maybe from your perspective, you know, you're 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 the only person that can say right now I'm the CG of this. What is your sort of vision uh, for what JRTC should be doing uh, for the army. Yeah, that's that's a great question. We we pride ourselves on being oriented to help units prepare to fight and win in the most strenuous circumstances that we can replicate. So the crucible is really the one word phrase or one word use that we we describe as your organization is going to come here and be placed under pressure that allows you to see where fracture points are or weaknesses are or strengths and allow you then to train to improve or enhance that which you already bring to the fight. So the crucible experience is what we're going for. And at the end of the day, what you see at JRTC should be more difficult than what you see in combat. So you were uh, you were at JRTC before in 2017, 2018, I understand, uh, as the COG, uh, Chief of the Operations Group. Um, you know, many listeners will be sort of uh, intuitively kind of aware of the way that training has changed because the, you know, our army's priorities have changed. The theaters that we're focused on are changing. Uh, 
but you know, if you, if we just pick sort of an arbitrary day, say 2007, 2008, kind of, you know, smack dab in the middle of the surge in Iraq, pre-surge in Afghanistan, uh, we're really focused on those theaters. If you take a training rotation from 2008, uh, and versus a training rotation now in 2021, uh, what are some of the maybe refinements that have been made, the changes that somebody would experience, uh, that maybe go under the radar that people don't necessarily think about? Yeah, not surprisingly, JRTC has evolved um, and really goes back from a, a Fort Polk perspective. We're celebrating our 80th anniversary this year. So 80 years of helping the Army train for war. Back to the Louisiana maneuvers of 1941, where the entire state was used as a training center. Yeah. Uh, through to what we did with Tigerland to help people prepare for the Vietnam War when they were sending individuals straight from Fort Polk into Vietnam through to what you described earlier is the model that we had for coin and CT preparation to deal with Afghanistan and Iraq and some of those conflicts. So that we've always been an evolving and adaptive organization. The changes that you would see now that are most substantial deal with the threat that we replicate and the capabilities that the threat has. And so it's no longer a hybrid threat where there's a conventional and a special operations threat. It is now peer or near-peer competitor capability. So EW, electronic warfare, cyber, uh, what we do with our jamming in some of the, the electromagnetic spectrum is much more advanced than even just a few years ago. Uh, we've enhanced the opposing forces' ability to do information operations and information warfare. And uh, we've included a thing that enables our world-class cyber not just to penetrate the friendly networks, but to penetrate the environmental network to shape perspectives and people's opinions. So it becomes a much more multifaceted problem set for a BCT, a brigade combat team. And on top of that, we're adding additional capabilities to the division, which is the headquarters that sits over top of the brigade when they show up to the rotation. So we train brigades to seek resources, assets, and tools that a division would typically allocate in order to fight and win. And that that's something we want our brigade commanders and battalion commanders to recognize, that in a large-scale combat operation, they're not going to be the only show in town. In many of the environments, when they would deploy for a, a coin mission, they might be the only battle space owner. They might be the only individual organization that was responsible for a mission or a piece of terrain. And what we think in the future is that they will be collaborative with multinational, uh, with joint and interagency elements. And really, in some cases, they might be the supporting element to a, a series of other organizations. And so they've got to learn how to fight and win when the, everything's not handed to them on a silver platter. I want to I want to ask a question about that. Um you know, the idea that they're part of this larger effort that involves multinational partners, host nation partners, joint and interagency partners. Uh, but first, I, you know, I want to ask one kind of follow-up question on if we think about, if we sort of conceptualize the difference in a training rotation in 2007, 2008 versus 2021, it's so different that it's almost revolutionary. But if we zoom in on a shorter time frame and think about kind of the evolution of, of how training changes uh, since, say, in the three years, since three years ago when you were the COG, uh, versus now, you know, how quickly, how dynamic is that? Is the change in the rotation and the conditions and the environment, is it keeping pace with technological change? Yeah. So just three years ago, we still had forward operating bases in the box. So there were actual berms and walls where units could, you know, seek shelter. Now they weren't fully kitted out with buildings and plumbing and everything else. 
but the terrain was still there. Those are gone. We In three years, we've completely eliminated those. In three years, uh, the instrumentation system that we use to enable the brigade to ped, to receive, to control uh, the information collection and intelligence collection has evolved massively. So now what you would see is a, an organization could do distributed command and control with their uh, intelligence assets, not in sanctuary, but offset. So it eliminates the requirement to have these megatalks and huge command posts that are easily targetable by the enemy. Yeah. And that's largely been driven by the capabilities we've applied to make sure that they can do this in a, in a manner that's befitting what we'd expect to do in, in combat operations in theater. So it, it uses the networks and the systems that the Army has developed and advanced and then puts them over top of the brigade in a realistic setting. So that's a huge change that's just happened in the last three years. And the other thing that I think is substantial within the last three years is we've enhanced uh, the air defense capability that uh, brigades are using and capable of using because I wasn't resident when I was the commander of operations group. We were very nascent in trying to introduce that into training because we believe large-scale combat operations, airspace is going to be a contested domain. And so we want our ground forces to be able to survive, protect themselves, and use the tools that they have at their disposal in order to you know, maintain the ability to maneuver or the ability to apply fires and, and successfully close with and destroy the enemy. So you have spent uh, a considerable amount of time in Iraq and Afghanistan, from uh, you know your time as a as a junior officer to to uh, quite recently as a senior leader in CJTF OIR in uh, in Iraq. So I'm curious about how you know for for years it seems like. Uh, the people who would be in your job now, uh, members of the of the op four uh, OCTs, will have had recent experience in Iraq or Afghanistan, so they're coming back, and that's a, a natural sort of feedback loop to to evolve the training in a way that replicates what we're seeing in operational theaters. Has that changed? Has that changed now? Um, you know, where we're not necessarily deploying. There, there isn't a, a theater that that we're trying to replicate so much. We're, we're really trying to kind of create training that fits what we expect that theater to look like. Yeah. The challenge for our scenario writers is pretty substantial because they want to have a cogent uh, framework for context that allows the road to war to make sense. Because if you knew you were going to deploy to Al Anbar, you could draw that data in, you could write a scenario that, that made that pretty clean. You could identify personalities and terrain and, and then apply that into the box with some, creative map making, and then a unit could go forward and fight that and then expect to see that when they deployed into Iraq. Now we have a Pacific campaign theater, we have a European campaign theater, and we have still our caucus campaign theater. And so the scenario writers have done a pretty reasonable job of ensuring the road to war paints an intelligence picture, a political picture, and a strategic uh, framework that allows the unit to go forward and, and understand why it is they're doing certain things. But the challenge, you know, you, you mentioned the correlation between what we've done in deployments and what we're trying to train for now with large scale combat operations. The, the contested nature of almost everything is so dramatically different in large scale combat operations as to, we have to break habits. We have to actually convince people that they're not going to be able to spend three, four weeks preparing to go into a mission set. They may be contested from the minute they leave home station. They may have people collecting against them as they're moving to a port of debarkation. 
they may have cyber attacks that eliminate their ability to to communicate what their supply requests are as they're getting ready to deploy. So what we're trying to do is very early on disabuse them of all these uh, coin or CT uh, models that we have learned over 20 years of operations related to sustainment and uh, protection uh, and a little bit with movement and maneuver. So that's a big challenge. And while you know there are more senior people who can reflect back on their combat deployments, um, the preponderance of the people we're training don't have those uh, experiences to you know pollute their mindset. What they have is kind of the urban legend of, hey, this is what we did when we were in Iraq. This is what we're going to do now. And sure. we have to kind of circumvent that and prevent it from becoming accepted practice. The other thing tying into, you know, the, my personal experience, um, a lot of, a lot of my time was spent in soft operation, special operations forces in doing very discrete mission sets. This that we're doing at the JRTC, um, environment now is more of a structured tied together series of events that aggregate. There aren't specific battle periods where one period ends and then you can start a new period. It's all connected. So from the minute you arrive to Fort Polk to do your reception staging and onward integration, everything that you do has an impact throughout the entire time that you're there so that, you know, there are aggregated effects and impacts and you you reap the consequences of decisions that you make throughout. And that's a little bit different than um, discrete military operations. Although, you know, at the strategic level, obviously there's correlation between what you do and what, what outcomes you get. But from an operational standpoint, it's a little bit more, uh, prolong it's a more prolonged fight. The, you know, I was, I was just kind of doing the math in my head. I, I believe you graduated, uh, commissioned in, in 1993, was that? That's correct. And so you had a period of uh, a formative period in your military career, sort of before Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, we have battalion commanders now who don't, who came into the army when these wars were going on and they started deploying as platoon leaders right away. That's a pretty big challenge to sort of you know, not forget everything that you know, but kind of remove yourself from all of that, those years of experience. Um, is there, is there, are there things though that do still apply? Or is there a risk of say throwing the baby out with the bathwater? Um, because there are a lot of hard earned lessons from Iraq and Afghanistan that we think, okay, that was CT and coin. We're preparing for large scale combat operations against a near peer adversary in this context of great power competition. That stuff doesn't matter. Is there, is there a mechanism by which to kind of make sure that we don't forget those lessons? Yeah, I really think there is because some of the leadership principles are applicable at all times, dealing with hardship, dealing with struggle, uh, time management. We dealt with those things during the deployments in Iraq and Afghanistan. Leaders had to make very difficult choices so that that experience that uh, those lessons are still applicable in a large scale combat operation. And really the other things that fires, movement, maneuver, some of those principles are enduring from a standpoint of what what systems we have to use and how we want to use them. What we are changing, though, are some of the conditions. And so the rules of engagement that were appropriate and necessary when trying to win the hearts and minds of a population where that was your strategic objective, those rules of engagement may not be as appropriate when we're trying to limit suffering by decreasing the duration of a conflict. So we may use much more lethal means to win a fight than perhaps we were interested in doing in a, in a setting uh, in those two theaters where we were operating with a little bit more uh, discretion 
for for some of the unintended consequences. So the 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 methods are a little bit different. The leadership is still incredibly applicable, and some of the conditions are much more different. Those are the more dramatic things that we're trying to introduce into uh, the force and the leaders that are coming out of potentially uh, a series of lessons that they gained in their junior junior years. You mentioned uh, the importance of sort of exposing uh, uh, individuals and leaders that are going through a JR2C rotation to this idea that they're going to be part of a broader effort, or they likely will be um, part of a multinational effort working with partners, uh, you know, a joint effort working with members of other services and interagency effort working with, you know, state department and, um, and other agencies. How do you, how do you do that? Cause you can't clearly bring a bunch of people from the, I mean, you know, the people are finite resources. Not everybody's going to give up a bunch of people to come and sort of play those roles. How do you make sure that, um, that you kind of drive those lessons home? Yeah, that's an interesting balance because if you, if you put too much of the, uh, intergovernmental, uh, spin on it, you could detract from the unit's focus on the military tasks at hand. But if you do those in absence of that milieu, you're going to really cause them to do things that would not be realistic. So sure. there's there's a challenge. And we do bring in some role players and some individuals with, with former State Department experience, uh, NGO experience. We actually have some UN folks that come in. So there, there's a flavor of that, and it helps us train with some of our po- folks who are specifically designed to do that. But we don't overcook that. Uh, that's that's a little bit of the modulation that we've made uh, in order to really get to a much more lethal, demanding um, environment where the, the combat effects are, are predominant. Um, but the multinational and the partner nation is on uh, almost exponential growth. We've had full battalions from some of our NATO partners come. So the Canadians, uh, Princess Patricia Light Infantry uh, joined us with an entire battalion that that took on significant responsibility during a rotation. We had a Brazilian company of paratroopers that jumped in with 82nd Airborne Division and brought their own aircraft in order to participate in a joint forcible entry exercise. We have uh, the British uh, on the current rotation, uh, have a company and then a subsequent rotation coming later this year are bringing another uh, squadron. So that and that enables us to help our leaders face the challenges of interoperability. And the, the fact that you're not going to fight as a U.S. exclusive force, and therefore you got to figure out classification issues. You have to figure out those things about uh, command and control. How are you going to actually speak with the partner force, which gives challenges to the rest of the army um, from an institutional standpoint to equip our forces to make them successful in that. So the multinational piece happens with a lot more frequency than the intergovernmental piece, a little less often by design. And then the joint piece is, you know, it's part of our name, the Joint Readiness Training Center. We have a Air Force component that's regularly with us. They bring in collection assets, they bring in strike assets, they bring in bombers fighters we've done some air to air for the first time at jrtc oh, wow. yeah to protect a joint forcible entry from the 82nd airborne division so the joint joint component of it is healthy and that's something we think is also continuously important to expose our leaders to as they make judgments on you know which tools and assets are most valuable so the the objective is clearly to create a scenario which is as realistic with re, which reflects at least what our expectations are of 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 a theater as realistically as possible. 
there are clearly some things that you can't do um, in terms of fires, in terms of maybe even some technologies. Um, how important is sort of simulations and being able to simulate those effects? And how do you do that without, you know, most, I think many of our listeners will have experiences like you maybe have had, I certainly have had where you kind of just roll your eyes because somebody throws a, you know, a, a firecracker and it's an IED and you have to react to that. Uh, how, how do you sort of incorporate simulations into, to, in order to augment and enhance the, the, uh, the training scenarios? Yeah, this is a fantastic growth area for the Joint Readiness Training Center. All the, the combined training centers or combined training centers are getting to a place where our simulations are much more realistic. Uh, we, we have working with uh, PEO Stry and some of the folks that are in the Army's inventory uh, advanced our, our MILES system, the, the system that allows for weapons effects to be uh, annotated and delivered. That, that is an area that's getting more sophisticated and we were able to aggregate data so that as the engagements take place, not just the observer controller trainers see it, but it gets sent back to the Joint Operations Center so we can roll it up and do after action reports on, hey, this person was engaged by this munition, which led to this casualty. So it gives us a little bit more granularity at the localized level. And that helps prevent some of the, you know, the fake uh, perceptions of this is silly. But also, it enables us to do more with that uh, echelonment. So our battalions are able to feel the effects of units that are outside the actual training area. So we, we can actually, with a logical, cogent scenario, produce uh, effects that exceed the capability of our human op four. So they can use uh, division level fires. They can use SU-35s as strike aircraft that pro pro uh, provide stimulus to the unit on the ground. And then at the headquarters levels, at the brigade level, they're seeing the picture that's being painted on adjacent units as well as uh, above brigade echelon to see how the fight's being shaped for them or the enemy is being degraded before they present themselves to their uh, fight. And so the simulation component is it's increasing our capability to replicate everything that you might see in a, a, a macro large scale combat operation. And it also ensures you know, we, we can record these kind of things. We can uh, present it back for the learning that usually happens in the after action reviews. And that becomes very powerful because instead of everybody having a frame of reference to say, hey, I thought this happened or I thought that happened, we can show what actually happened and therefore then go into the details on why it took place and what they want to do differently. Can you, can you talk a little bit more about sort of the echelons above brigade? Because, you know, you have a brigade combat team, say, come to, uh, come to JRTC for a rotation. Uh, I read a book uh, about a year or so ago called Command um, uh, by a professor from the University of Warwick named Tony King, and it was about division command. Um, and it, I, you know, my mind was almost blown when I opened it up and realized that he was, he described a division as the largest tactical unit. And for anybody who's been in Iraq or Afghanistan, thinking of a division as a tactical unit, you know, when I was in Baghdad in 2008, um, 2008, 2009, the, the MNDB was just a giant building on, on BIOP. It wasn't a tactical unit, even a brigade combat team. We didn't think of that way because, you know, tactical units were squads and platoons that were going out and doing these things. Uh, how do you sort of reinforce this idea that if you have a brigade there or a battalion there, that there are echelons above them? Do you also simulate sort of those relationships and ones with adjacent units to sort of give the impression or create the impression that you're part of a larger operation? We absolutely do. And, and I agree with that uh, thesis that the division is the largest 
tactical organization. I, I've seen from our integration with some of the warfighter activity that, you know, the core headquarters wants to be, you know, a tactical or operational unit <laughs> in many cases and are stripping division assets in order to produce effects, usually deeper, but sometimes, you know, in the immediate vicinity of a brigade combat team. So yeah, we, we, we replicate it by having a joint task force headquarters or a 21st division headquarters that sits over top of every a brigade combat team that comes to a rotation and, and they have a staff and the staff allocates resources or doesn't allocate resources or allocates resources to the notional units that are on the left and right of the brigade combat team as it's actually in the box. Uh, the brigade commander has to sit through targeting meetings with the division commander to petition for resources and, and show why they should be allocated scarce tools that would otherwise go to their sister or brother brigades. The staff has reports that they have to file in order to make sure that the division gets an accurate picture of what's taking place so that the larger mission can continue. So their time is absorbed in engagements with the division. And recently, and I think to the credit of our division commanders in the Army, the divisions have been sending uh, elements of their own command post to the rotations to actually provide that service for their own people. Now they're they're kind of coached so that they don't come up with something that's inconsistent <laughs> with what the scenario can provide or exceeds sure. our resources. But you actually have in many cases a division commander talking over a radio or through a digital means to the brigade commander, directing them to accomplish the missions that the JRTC environment wants them to do. And the division commander, the two stars, making decisions on whether or not that brigade is going to get certain resources or certain sustainment focus or certain aviation assets or if those are going to be husbanded for other tasks. And so that that's a powerful reminder to brigades that, you know, they're part of a larger team and that those tools that they want to use have to be employed very carefully uh, because there's just not enough of them to go around. So there was a, um, on, on Twitter, mill Twitter, of course, um, very active. There was a, a really interesting exchange that I saw a few weeks ago, uh, between several people, um, very smart people, people I respect a lot talking about the importance of failure at CTC during CTC rotations. Um, and it, you know, it, it kind of struck me, you, you wrote an article that I've read, uh, about three years, two and a half years ago. Uh, I think, you know, just kind of after your time as the cog, uh, that touched on this issue. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of failure and, you know, maybe, you know, I think intuitively we all think, oh, it's important to fail because then you can learn from your mistakes. But, but why can you talk kind of on a deeper level about, you know, you described the crucible as a place to kind of stress test organizations to find those, those points of fragility. Um, is failure really that important to it? Is it, you know, is it, is it better to never have a unit that comes through and, and passes with, with flying colors? Well, the, the fact is units often succeed in marvelous and miraculous ways at, at the Joint Readiness Training Center. And we see operations that happen that all of us kind of scratch our heads on and say, that was impressive. So it, failure may take place in certain areas within the units, but success happens often. I mean, we really do see it. Um, but we do tell people that there are only two types of plans at JRTC. There are plans that will not work. And then there are plans that might work. And <laughs> we see a lot of the good plans that might work, not produce the results that they expect because of different elements within the organization's composition or leadership or uh, some of their processes. And those are the places where failure helps. If, if the, the plan was designed well, 
and the organization really thought through all the different things that should enable it to succeed. It goes out and executes very well in a variety of different areas, but one thing or several you know components uh, caused the plan to, to fall apart or not produce the effect that they want. Then we're able to kind of help them see that and say, okay, listen, all these other things were magnificent, really well done. These things worked. These people were on their game, but what, what do you think happened here? Why do you think it happened? And what is it that we would want to do differently or do better? And so failure happens, but it's not mandatory. Failure happens in large cases because of the complexity of the operations, the scope and scale that we're putting together. And, and that's also entirely acceptable. We, we don't see often, um, you know, complete leadership failures where people are corrosive or they, they can't handle themselves under the stress that that does not happen often. And because that's not a real threat when units fail through other means or for other reasons, it is generally seen as like you described earlier, a way to recognize what we want to work on with the limited amount of time we have with the limited amount of resources we have in home station training or future training. And the other thing, you know, tied into, you know, is failure damaging to organizations ethos or psyche. Uh, we really try to show the individual excellence and make sure leaders are aware of that. So we, you know, we're currently are calling it who are the people that are winning at the point of contact. And we go out of our way to highlight, you know, in some cases it's heroism or just uh, technical competency or things that you want to build upon. So a unit can walk away saying, Hey, these individuals or these organizations within our formation are, you know, that's the rallying point. There's, that's the point at which we can build the rest of our unit by using them as an example. And so again, failure happens, but it's not mandatory and nor is it indicative of a unit that can't fight. It's just, we have the means to increase the temperature until we find those things that need to get worked on. And we work with the division commanders as senior trainers to dial it up or dial it back to make sure that overall training objectives are met so that a unit doesn't you know, waste its time at JRTC. We still want them to finish through certain tasks that they can't do anywhere else. We want them to achieve the results that are commensurate with what was planned for them uh, so that they can then take it as an experience to either deploy with and fight and win or to go back and readdress home station training. And the last point, since, since you let me talk about this a little bit, <laughs> individuals don't stay with these units forever. So you think about how a, a BCT comes back from a de uh, deployment to JRTC or NTC, there's normal turbulence and those folks are going off to other units. What we want is their experience at the CTCs to be transportable and not just tied to what they saw with the people and the humans and the dynamics were in that organization. We want them to say, okay, systemically, if I'm part of a organization that has this mission, here are the things that I should understand. So if I go to Fort Carson or Fort Drum or Fort Riley, I can still take those lessons with me and apply them in whatever unit I'm serving. That's an important point, I think, because, you know, as you said, um, you know, you've got a lot of people cycling through rotations there. You've probably got a lot of people, OCTs and, 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 and other people at JRTC who maybe don't have a combat patch, who don't have this recent experience to sort of draw on. Um, for years, we were sort of relying on 
individual experience to sort of create the basis for institutional knowledge. And as people moved around, they say, this is the way my unit did it when we were in, you know, RC South in, in 2009, or this is the way my unit did it when we were in, in Baghdad in 2006. Uh, without that, the CTCs are probably, I mean, are not probably, they're really the only place where we can kind of create those individual experiences that then can contribute to this institutional. Yeah. It's a baseline. Um, That's exactly right. That's excellent. So, okay. So I want to ask you then if we're, we're, uh, having this conversation kind of at the end of April, um, if we, if we look forward say three months to late July, um, and you have, you know, a battalion commander or, you know, say a brigade combat teams, three battalion commander, four battalion commanders, um, their staff officers, and then junior leaders in kind of three rooms. And you get to go in and spend 10 minutes with each one of them. Um, you know, besides telling them to prepare to sweat because it's late July at, at Fort Polk, what do you sort of give them as as sort of, you know, advice in terms of how do I spend the next 90 days preparing to try to succeed when when we when we finally get down there? Yeah, that's a that's a phenomenal question. So each echelon has their own degree of responsibility. And if you look at what the chief of staff of the army has told us in General Garrett as the force com commander of the forces command commander has told us he wants our units to train exclusively at the squad platoon and company level. He wants them to get sets and reps so that they master the fundamentals and can do the tasks that they're designed to do in a replicated way again and again and again and again. So if that's in fact what he has told us to do, um, what are, we, what are we doing with our battalions and our brigade staffs? And what I would say is, you know, battalions and brigades have to recognize that they have competencies that they can do uh, and, and consider themselves as if they were squads and train their own uh, skill sets so that when they get added over top of a unit that's well-trained at the company level, they can be value added. So how do you do that, you ask? Well, I think, you know, if I was a junior commander and I had three months to get ready for a uh, a combat training center, I would make sure that I was very familiar with my communications systems because that becomes your lifeline to a bunch of resources and tools. I would make sure that I had some very good uh, orders products that I could produce under stress, under time constraints, with very little sleep that would enable me to relay purpose and intent to my subordinates so they could execute in case those comms platforms don't work. And then I would also, as a junior leader, you know, junior commander, I would spend time ensuring uh, that as I arrived to the CTC, that I had a plan, no kidding, to know where my stuff is packed. I know this sounds terribly rudimentary, but we send, we see units that spend so much time getting organized for combat that they, they waste and squander their planning time or their rehearsal time or their preparation time because they didn't look at the arrival as part of that combat mission. We talked at the very beginning about you know, what is it that you do to recognize that your environment from the time you get the order to leave to the time you arrive is a contested space? And they get, really have to treat it like that. They have to plan, you know, within a very, I would say, excruciating level of detail. So when they arrive, they're not ruining the decisions that they made on how they packed out or how they arranged for combat or how they prioritized different material to show up. So that, that would be what I would say with three months for a junior commander. For a staff at the battalion level, I would say, hey, make sure your standard operating procedures are up to date, that you actually are familiar with them. And even if they don't look perfect, that you've actually seen them. So that when you get into 
the rotation and you want to make changes, you're operating off a common reference. That that seems to be one of the things that causes the most problem. And as I recall, growing up, I mean, at the company level, we had a tax op and a planning op and a, a field op. We had all these SOPs. I think now that we've become digital, we've been less attentive to actually maintaining those things. So I, I think any kind of unit SOP, whether it's for their tactical operations, their command posts, their plans, anything they do to, to refine those or at least be familiar with them before they show up is, is really a, a useful application at time. And then for the commanders, you know, I think other than get a lot of sleep before you show up, uh, <laughs> I would tell them they really want to make decisions on what their understanding of their, their talent is and how they feel like it could be used, you know, getting to know their people uh, because you're going to rely upon different people in different ways under different circumstances. And that last three months, there's very little that you can do to shape the organization. Most of the stuff that you've already built is what you're going to show up with. And so I think having people understand how you're going to communicate, how you're going to receive information, uh, how you like to do certain meetings, whether it's your targeting meeting, whether it's something that has to do with how you want to do battlefield circulation and talk to people. Um, and then, you know, ensuring that what you, we've, we've, I've discussed with those subordinate units, whether it's the staffs or the junior commanders is actually being done. Uh, but, at, but at three months out for a brigade at the brigade level, most of what you've already baked into the system is what you're going to show up with. So I want to kind of probably wrap up with this question, um, but I want to ask you about modernization. Um, and I, so modernization is one of those words uh, that's like readiness. We hear it a lot, but it almost, we hear it so much that it risks losing kind of its meaning. Um, the advantage that we have, you know, we recorded an episode with, uh, with General McConville maybe about a year ago, where he talked a lot about modernization and the way he framed it was very helpful. And we tend, the nice thing is we have, you know, the cross-functional teams as kind of frames of reference of this is what modernization means is doing new things and developing new tools in these eight areas. We talk about the big five systems that we've had now for 40 years and are recognizing, hey, these are getting old. We need to replace them. So we start thinking about it in terms of that. But it's it's more nuanced than that, I think. And that risks kind of distracting us from from all the different things that modernization means. How, how do CTCs fit into what Army Futures Command is doing in terms of... Um, you know, rolling out new systems and and doing all of those things that that um, maybe kind of fly under the radar as part of modernization efforts. I'm glad you asked this one too. The, you know, there's two components of the modernization effort at the CTC. There's kind of the perception and attitude, which is a huge component of what are we doing to stay current uh, within what we feel are accurate threat models, and then the technical. And so I'll, I'll break it down for both of those. General McConville has talked about and I'm sure if he mentioned it to you, the transformation that our army went through in the 1940s when we were preparing for World War II and all the technological, industrial, and you know, doctrinal things that we had to correct or modify or in some cases create in order to be effective on a, a global campaign. In the 1980s, you mentioned it, he, he talked, when, he, when Joe McConville speaks, he talks about the modernization effort that ties to our doctrine with airland battle talks about the all-volunteer force. He talks about the big five. Uh, but if, you're, if you look at his slide and you, you listen to him talk, he also talks about the CTCs, the actual creation and development of the CTCs. National Training Center at Fort Irwin in 1985 and the Joint Readiness Training Center originally at Fort Chappie in 1987. 
because those were the proving grounds that enabled the army to discover even more about our doctrine and discover even more about whether those big five could be integrated and really see, see the benefit of having an all-volunteer force with phenomenal non-commissioned officers, uh, fin fantastic leaders, and uh, really, you know, in, in many cases, super talented uh, soldiers. So the proving grounds were essential as a component of modernization. And so for now, in the, you know, the, the 40 years after the 1980s and the 2020s, doing modernization again, we're, we're doing modernization with programs, with our capabilities and systems. And you, you hear about the 30 plus one or whatever number you want to talk about from a standpoint of what our cross-functional teams are developing. You also see the multi-domain operations being introduced, and that's a doctrinal shift that truly is going to change how we perceive combat. And I think the CTCs are still in the discussion. The CTCs have to be the proving grounds in order to do that, they've got to modernize as well. So that takes us to the two points of technical or the attitude. So the attitude has to be, uh, and I think that's the underpinning to, to successful um, proving grounds is that we are learning that the combat training centers allow us to learn, to integrate, to synchronize, to innovate, to discover. So that attitude has to remain consistent and it can't be seen that in light of the absence of rotations to combat, that your grades are now going to be formed by going to a CTC and whether or not you're successful in your future endeavors is completely driven by whether you're successful at a combat training center. That, that's not part of the package, nor should it be. The, the attitude has to be that we're going to figure out what works and what doesn't work in a very difficult, demanding uh, environment. And that that's part of modernization because all these new things are getting applied into the CTC environment, whether it's the innovations for our opposing force or the innovations for our rotational training units. And that's the technical component. So if we're going to give a brigade combat team the workout it needs, then the division that sits over top of it has to replicate the tools that a division has, which means we're we are responsible to maintain that type of equipment or to have access to that type of equipment in order to put the pressure on the brigade through the means that they would see if they were going to be deployed in combat. So we can't have circa 1990s technical systems and then force the brigade to retrofit themselves because that's untraining them rather than training them. So that's a technical component that we need to modernize uh, from the CTC inventory. The other thing we have to have is, and you mentioned this earlier in the discussion, the idea of the, the better simulations, the better instrumentation, the better feedback mechanisms, the more realistic uh, battlefield engagement and effects. Because you know we're getting to the point where if we go to our IVAS goggles in a synthetic training environment, they're going to be able to see things that we can't even fathom right now. And why can't we make that part of the CTC experience as well? Why can't we give them injects on data points that are coming from elsewhere so I think the technical capability has to, to match, again, what the, the brigades are going to go through as they innovate and adapt new technologies. And then, you know, the technical component has to be somewhat related to our OCT's ability to communicate as rapidly as the brigades are going to be able to communicate in order to provide them meaningful feedback and to do things safely uh, and in a way that allows them to train successfully and not accept unnecessary risk. So there's a, a host of technical capabilities that we've got to get better on within our supporting architecture. So that's what modernization means to me. 
and I think it nests with what General McConville has expressed. And even in an era of you know potential fiscal restraint, many of these things are already out there. We just have to move them around and put them into practice. So I don't know that there's as much competition as some people fear to be to keep the CTCs relevant. Uh, we just we have to do it in a way that makes sense, uh, so that organizations know that they can come to the National Training Center, the Joint Readiness Training Center, the uh, Joint Multinational uh, Readiness Center, and prepare to fight and win. Well, sir, thank you very much. Uh, I really appreciate you making some time to have have this conversation. Like I said, uh, you know, when I when I opened, I said I think a, a, a large number of our listeners will have spent time at JRTC. A large number will be going to JRTC, and I think um, you know, I think the discussion will be interesting to anybody who who has a professional interest in and in, in how the U.S. Army is 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 training to prepare to fight and win. Uh, but I think especially for those people who are getting ready to to take on one of those rotations, either you know, it's 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 on their training calendar already, or, or they just know that they're going to in the next couple years, this is going to be very valuable. So, so I really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for your time. And again, this is an incredibly professional forum. I think the opportunity to speak with your listeners is going to do benefits, not just for the, the CTC programs, but certainly for the army. And uh, I will continue to be an advocate for all that you guys do here. It's fantastic. Thank you, sir. appreciate that. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the MWI podcast. One last thing before you go, if you aren't yet subscribed to the podcast, you can find it on your favorite podcast app. And if you have a second, please leave a rating or give it a review, which really helps us reach new listeners. Thanks again for listening.